Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. Our subject today is the timely one of value investing and its prospects in the wake of the huge upset of a Trump victory in the American presidential election. With events like the US election and Brexit grabbing the headlines, it's easy to lose sight of the other deeper trends that have been driving financial markets in recent months. One of those, and potentially a highly significant one, is the recent return to form of value investing as a style of putting your money to work. According to every academic study that I've ever seen, the evidence is clear that value investing, buying shares that are cheap on some relative or absolute measure, produces better returns over time than its traditional counterpart, growth stock investing. Investors love growth shares, those that can grow their earnings faster than average, but invariably tend to end up paying too high a price for that rare quality, which typically leads them to chase prices too high and that produces inferior returns over time. Yet for the last eight years, ever since the global financial crisis in fact, growth as a style has consistently outperformed value. Now that may not be surprising perhaps in a world where economic growth has become such a rare commodity, but nevertheless it has created one of the longest and most sustained such periods on record. So does that mean that value investing is now set to make a big return in the months and years ahead? That's the issue which I discuss in this podcast with Joe Bauenfreund, the portfolio manager of the British Empire Trust, a long-standing £600 million global investment company that has long been known to connoisseurs for its strict value approach. Seeking out companies, typically in this case family-controlled businesses, conglomerates and closed-in funds, that for one reason or another are trading at a discount to their underlying asset value. The hope Indeed, expectation being that those discounts would narrow over time, producing uh, above-average returns. In keeping with value as a style, the trust performance has improved sharply in the last 12 months, which is why it seems a good moment to have this conversation. I started out, therefore, by asking Joe why he thought value investing as a style had done so poorly until recently. Well, I think that um, the economic environment post-financial crisis has been more challenging than periods following crises in the past. Economic growth has been weaker than expected or hoped for. And therefore, in a world that has been starved of economic growth, investor capital has um, attempted to find homes in areas that can deliver that superior growth. And that has naturally led to uh, money flowing into growth-style companies, technology companies, quality dependable compounders that are able to continue to continually generate higher profits each year and pay higher dividends and of course uh, that's the, that's the other factor the low interest rate environment or the zero interest rate environment that we have has led people to seek out investors to seek out any income generating opportunities they can find and what that has meant is that the valuations on part of the market that growth part of the market the quality part of the market have been pushed out to extreme levels by these investors in search of growth and in search of income. And what's been left behind has been value stocks. Value stocks include, at the current period of time, such companies as banks, oil companies up until earlier this year, more cyclical companies, companies that are more economically challenged. And in a weak economic environment, those companies have been overlooked and been considered to be less interesting. So we have this very big performance gap, but we also have the valuation gap. So you say it's bad news. It has been a difficult time for value investors, but 
the positive aspect of this is that at the end of the day, over the long term, valuation matters. And valuation can get out of control, can go to extreme levels for periods of time. But it's, I don't believe it's likely to be sustained in the long term indefinitely. And at some point in time, and I think we've seen this this year, investors will wake up to the fact that they are paying high valuations for companies that can't continually generate that higher growth and higher dividend, and that there will be better opportunities elsewhere in the market, and capital will start to flow to those better opportunities. And how important to that, to that scenario do you think would it be if either central banks were going to change their policies in some way, or if bond yields, for example, are going to start to rise on a secular basis. Is that a necessary condition before value comes back into favour? Oh, it's not necessary. I think more relevant is um, the economic environment and what will lead to the central banks and policymakers generally to change the course that they're on. So um, stronger economic growth, a better environment would be better for value investing. A more benign economic environment coupled with stronger inflation and a desire to combat that higher inflation would probably not be a very good environment for equities. So there is a slight dilemma, which is that you may get a change in conditions which favour a particular style of value investing in equities, but it might we might have to go through a poor period for equities in general before we get there. It's possible. It's a difficult question to answer. I don't like to um, predict the direction of markets. But you are a value investor. Of course, now the term value investing covers a wide range of approaches. And obviously, some of them have done better in the most recent period, and some will do better again in future periods. How would you define your particular approach to value investing? Well, at British Empire, we focus on a specific universe of companies. And that universe of companies broadly includes companies that trade at discounts to net asset value. It leads us to focus on a specific and fairly unique subset of companies that include family-controlled holding companies, that include other investment trusts, and more generally asset-backed companies such as real estate companies. And the overriding feature of all those companies is uh, that they trade at significant discounts to their net asset value or their liquidation value. And in simple terms, what that means is that we like to buy a pound of assets for significantly less than that pound. So that is one classical definition of what a value investor is. You're trying to buy assets for less than their current wealth. That's right. So the the trick is then, with the kind of instruments that you are investing in, and we'll go through one or two of those classes in a moment, the trick is to find some reason why Mm -hmm. that discount should either disappear or could reduce, giving you that return on top of the underlying assets themselves. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, There are no shortage of companies around the world trading at discounts to net asset value. Now, very often, those companies are trading at discounts for a very good reason. That discount is there to warn investors of potential value traps and to give an indication, perhaps, that the valuation of that business is too high and it's going to go down, or that the corporate governance of the company is weak, that there are controlling shareholders or managers who are abusing their position and um, harming uh, minority external investors. So those are all the things that we have to be alert to. And what we're trying to find are the anomalies, the opportunities to buy into something on a wide discount, which doesn't necessarily represent a warning sign, but really is an opportunity. And we're looking really at two aspects of these companies. Number one, we're looking at the valuations of those assets. It's one thing to buy something that's worth a pound today. 
what we're really interested in is the growth of that pound. And we wouldn't buy into a situation where we thought that pound would stay at a pound for the long term, or indeed if the pound were to fall, that pound were to fall. And at the same time, we're also focused on this universe of companies trading at discounts. And if we are going to buy into companies trading at discounts, then there has to be some reasonable possibility of that discount disappearing over time. So we're also focused on what kind of events may occur in order to, to enable that discount to narrow. Now, those events could be something that we force upon the company as an activist investor, engaging with the boards there and trying to encourage some kind of event that would see either the sale of an asset, the return of capital, the liquidation of a company, that kind of thing, or where we're focused more on the kind of event that the management of the company are able to bring to the table, such as the IPO of an unlisted asset that the market is undervaluing, where we, um, through our analysis, are aware of that undervaluation and are thinking about how that could come to the fore of investors' minds and see a re-rating in the shares, as well as a closing of the discount gap. So I guess it varies a little bit from each type of situation that you're investing in. I mean, broadly speaking, I think it's fair to say you invest, as you said, in holding companies, you invest in closed-end funds or the sort of equivalent of UK investment trusts, and you also invest in property and some other situations as well. Let's just take the holding companies first of all. I suppose one of the questions there is, if it's a family-controlled holding company, they don't necessarily need to see the value realised every year. They're not going to go and sell the shares anytime soon. And if you look at some of the bigger holding companies in your portfolio, they, they are controlled or, or at least heavily influenced by some very well-off families. So what makes you believe that that situation will change? Well, with respect, when one thinks about family-controlled holding companies, the focus should not necessarily be on the discount. The focus should be on the quality of the assets and the potential for that to grow. And the reason for that is, as you point out in your question, that the family at the end of the day are in control and they have certain objectives over the long term. And they certainly do not want to liquidate their company and return all the cash to the family members. They want to continue investing in the business and see the value of their assets grow over time and over generations. So that's what we need to think about. We need to think about the quality of the assets and the alignment of interests with that controlling shareholder. In other words, do they want the same thing as we do, which is long-term growth? And in such a situation where we can be invested in those companies for several years, the growth in NAV is going to be the biggest driver of the return. We will seek to invest at the wider end of the discount range, and we will seek and expect certain events that should yield a narrowing of the discount. And that narrowing of the discount will contribute to the overall return. But over multi, a multi-year holding period, it will be a smaller part of the return than the actual NAV growth element of it. So in other words, you're, you're, you're backing the families to have the same objective as yours, broadly, which is to invest their money sensibly and indeed in growth businesses. Yeah, that's right. Where so, they may actually have some advantage as being a, the entity that they are, the kind of, the kind of business they Yeah, are. they're not focused on quarterly earnings. They're not driven by boosting earnings per share in order to generate a bonus for themselves. They're not taking on additional risk by gearing up the company. Yeah, as you say, they're after the same thing as us. Broadly speaking, they also want the discounts to disappear because if the family member ever has to sell shares, why would they want to leave the value on the table? But, you know, they're not prepared to press the nuclear button and liquidate the fund. So that's why we do focus on buying at the wider end of the range. We do focus on investing in companies that care about the discount and are proactive in 
meeting investors, talking about their portfolio companies, allowing investors to carry out due diligence and full valuations of the assets, even when they're unlisted. Occasionally, some will do buybacks, which is obviously something we support, pay high dividends, pay increasing dividends, and generally be shareholder-friendly. Now, the other thing that people sometimes say about these kind of holding companies is that the market in the share system tends to be relatively illiquid. In other words, there isn't quite as much trading because there's never an opportunity for uh, takeover or anything like that. But what you're saying is there are opportunities within that to trade in and out a little bit. So if the discount goes to 40%, you might buy them. And if it comes back to 20%, you might lighten up a little bit. Is that how you think about it? Is that how you Yeah, about? that's right. One shouldn't think of us as frenetic traders, but we're always looking to construct the best value portfolio at any point in time. So as you say, a situation that's on a 40% discount would pique our interest. We'd be interested in buying more shares perhaps in the situation. Once that narrows towards a more normal level or an average level or tighter, then we would be looking to lighten up and put that capital to work elsewhere. But I think the point that you make there is is good because it highlights the fact that when we buy into a family-controlled holding company, it's rarely, if ever, our expectation that we will get out at a 0% discount. There's always some kind of discount that's warranted by the structure, by the history and the historic trading ranges, and the lack of a full-scale liquidity event. Right, so that gives us a good opportunity to move on to a second class, which is these closed-end funds, where that isn't necessarily the case, where there's always the option that by some kind of action taken by the board or by some outside investors, there is an opportunity to realise the value of the underlying assets because it is, after all, a fund rather than an ongoing life cycle business. Yeah, that's right. So the fundamental difference from our perspective is that in the case of a family-controlled holding company, at best we will be the second largest shareholder and not have any control. Whereas in the case of another investment trust or closed-end fund, we can and often will be the largest shareholder and will seek to use that position in order to engage constructively and proactively with the boards and the managers of those companies in the pursuit of value creation approaches. So just looking at this overall for a moment, I mean, one of the reasons why your performance has been relatively poor in the last two or three years until the last year when it's improved quite significantly, is that because the discounts of the things you've owned have been widening or is it because the NAV performance has been disappointing or both? Or neither. Or neither. You raise a few interesting points. The performance over the last year has been markedly better But the interesting factor is that the weighted average discount on on our portfolio has actually widened by two or three percentage points over the last year. So I would say that discounts on the whole across our portfolio and across the universe have remained fairly wide over the last two or three years. So that's probably not a, a perfect explanation for our performance. Another factor that I think is relevant has been the strength of the pound in 2013, 14 and 15 and the weakness of the pound in 2016. That's because I think something like 90% of your assets are That's right. a listed or located outside the UK. Yeah, yeah a little bit more, 95% on the basis uh, are outside of the UK. So, you know, some of those years were frustrating because what we saw at a local currency level was pretty strong NAV growth from our companies, discounts that remained wide but weren't really moving particularly wider, and the translation effect back into sterling and Bear in mind that relative to some of our peers, we had a lot less in the US and we had a period of time where the US markets and the dollar and the pound were very strong and we were underexposed to those companies. So 
The other factor that, that is more relevant when we think about this past year and the prior years has been the lack of corporate activity. So this has been a year, the last 12, 13 months, where there has been elevated levels of corporate activity. And corporate activity is what drives the events in our portfolio that unlock the discounts. That could be M&A, it could be IPOs, it could be activists getting more active, changing the way that the companies run, that's sort of thing. That's what you mean by corporate event. Yes, all those are, are examples of corporate activity. And it's that that's more relevant to our style of investing than the broad value versus growth cycle. Why has that been, do you think, and, and what, what again will trigger that change in the level of corporate activity? It's been a variety of things. I think that low interest rates and negative interest rates feed the animal spirits in the corporate world and encourage activity. We're at a stage in the cycle where one has to be a little bit more proactive. Investors have to be more proactive in terms of seeking out opportunities to generate returns. And that fuels corporate activity, that fuels M&A, it fuels takeovers. We're also at a fairly mature point in time as it be the market cycle. So you have private equity funds that are looking to sell assets and return capital to shareholders. You have others who are raising capital. So yeah, it's a good time. It's a fertile time for activity. And that's good for us. We've been building positions in certain investment trusts for two or three years now. We've been engaging with management in thinking about how to realize some of that value. And we've come to a particularly fruitful point in time. And we're seeing companies, private equity funds, for example, sell assets, move into realization mode, return capital to shareholders, in some cases, full runoff, full liquidation. And that's allowing us, A, to realize some of that hidden value in the NAV, and also to capture some of those discounts as they narrow. So what we can see, as you said, looking back over the past year, has been a good year for your fund after two or three years of relatively um, poor performance before that. And I've noticed also that you have increased the gearing in your trust at the start of this year, which normally is an indication that you're anticipating some good returns. And you've also, I think, had a, a review of your process and perhaps taking a bit more of a concentrated risk in what you're doing. Yeah. Is that a fair summary? And, and, and why have you done that? Well, it is a fair summary. And the reason why we, we did that was that, um, you know, as you pointed out, the prior few years had been challenging for us, and we were interested to understand why that was. And what we saw was that um, the core philosophy that defined how we invested was relevant and worked. And after a period of underperformance, we thought that the most sensible thing to do was to focus even more so on that area of our core competency and to express our conviction in the strategy and in the portfolio through a more concentrated, a slightly geared portfolio, and to make sure that the, that the situations that we saw on the horizon that should uh, see the unlocking of those discounts was actually uh, reflected in the portfolio by reasonable sized positions rather than just having lots of small sized positions that gave us something good to talk about but didn't actually move the needle. Right, so slightly bigger bets within the overall context and a bit of gearing as well which I, as I say, I trust in, uh, reflects a degree of confidence that the, uh, that the strategy is, is going yeah, to work. Yeah, we saw a tremendous amount of value. Uh, we saw very wide discounts. We saw NAVs that we thought were undervalued, understated. We saw events that, that were going to unfurl over the coming 12, 18 months. And we wanted to um, make sure that we benefited from that. So we reduced the number of holdings from probably around 45 to closer to 30. 
we made sure that the portfolio was fully invested all of the time rather than carrying some cash as we had done previously. We took on some modest gearing, so now we have roughly 8% gearing and we fully utilise that. We put that to work rather fortuitously at the end of January 2016 as the market had fallen somewhat from high levels earlier in the year. We've had the benefit of um, the weaker pound after three years of pain. We've had some time in the sun. But the important thing about the performance over the last year has been that it's, yes, the pound weakness has contributed to returns, but a significant proportion of the returns came from NAV growth and discount contraction at the underlying situations. And the good thing is we still see huge opportunities in our universe for further upside. We're waiting for two or three situations over the next couple of weeks that will see probably the elimination of discounts entirely in those situations. We have a list of companies waiting to come into the portfolio and have no room for them at the moment. So as things stand, uh, we're pretty excited about the future. Would it be unfair to say that some of the changes you've made in the trust, in a way, are the kind of review of what you've been doing that you actually suggest to some of your investor companies they ought to be doing? Absolutely. When one thinks about... um, our largest position, which is Acker, the Norwegian holding company, it's been by far the biggest contributor performance over the last 9 to 12 months. They've had a torrid two or three years because they were focused on oil and oil services. They are a holding company and they were based in Norway. So they've suffered krona weakness, discount widening and a collapsing NAV. But oil exploration, oil services, oil businesses is what they've done forever and what they intend to do in the future. And they have a strong balance sheet and they have a long-term perspective. And we encourage them to um, utilize that position to create long-term value. So what they've done is they've sold some mature assets that were not in the oil sector that had risen in value very sharply. They've taken that capital and invested it in specific situations in the oil industry that are trading at very low valuations. They've also taken the time to be very proactive owners of the businesses that they own. The best example of that was their investment in Detnor, Detnorska, the oil exploration company. They are a partner in um, one of the largest ever fields discovered in Norway and is due to come on stream in 2019. But obviously with the oil price languishing at $25 in January and debt and financial covenants, uh, the market was worried that Detmore would go bust earlier this year. And what they did was they did a transformative deal with BP Norway, whereby BP Norway injected their assets into Detmore. They've created now a company that has production, that has cash flow, that has no stretched balance sheet, no risk of breaching covenants, that in fact announced last week would be paying a, an almost 5% dividend deal this year and completely transformed this business. Uh, which has allowed Detmore, which is by far the biggest proportion of Acker's NAV, to more than double this year. And it just goes to show how proactive ownership, long-term perspective, having a view on creating long-term value for shareholders is the right thing to do. And yes, we support that, and we try and do the same thing for our own shareholders. And I guess also there is an element, by definition, if you are a value investor, of trying to do counter-cyclical things. It's no accident, I think, that this year... As you mentioned, oil and gas have been very strong performers and natural resources generally have been strong performers. And we're waiting to see whether the banks who also crop up on every value screen I've ever seen start to perform, which may be a function of central bank policy and so on. But it is the value investors challenge all the time to be investing in things that other people don't want by definition. 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. To be a successful value investor, you have to be a little bit contrarian. You have to um, see opportunities that perhaps most other investors are not interested in. And the way I think about that is for ourselves here, for the team here, is to really do our due diligence, to do our fundamental analysis and have conviction in the situations we invest in. Because we may be right in the long term, but the market may send us messages constantly in the short term that we're wrong. And in that environment, we have to be sure that what we've done is correct. We have to have conviction in our work. So that if the market um, gives us the opportunity to buy those assets cheaper, we take that and are confident about that. And that's really what we've been doing the last 12 to 15 months, building a high conviction portfolio, doing a lot of research, having the fundamental belief in those situations and uh, having that long term perspective. If we then look a little bit at the, the kind of way your portfolio breaks down in terms of sectors and regional exposure, I guess the first thing to say is that that is to some extent, just a reflection of, of the Pacific places you've chosen to put your money. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's a region in general that you want to, or sector you want to invest in. But can I just ask you about real estate? From your own presentation, it comes across that you, if you don't want to look through bases, you've got a pretty significant exposure to real estate. And yet I think many people would feel that the real estate, while it is obviously a good long-term investment, could be challenged in, a, in an environment where interest rates are rising. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that. And um, in the same way that I've spoken about family-controlled holding companies and closed-end funds and our focus on discounts and events, the same applies to real estate companies. So we are not looking to allocate capital to real estate for the sake of it. We're looking at specific situations that have interesting opportunities for us to unlock that value in the discount. So for example, we've been very active in the last three or four years in the German residential market. This was a a market where we saw absolute valuations that were very attractive relative to uh, particularly Anglo-Saxon markets. It was a a market that was also going through some structural change that was seeing greater interest uh, from buyers to buy their own property rather than to rent their home. Which is the the norm, has been the norm. Has been the norm, absolutely right. It was a market that was trading where values were below replacement cost, and all of that was interesting. But over the last few years, what we've seen is an increase in corporate activity, in M&A, that has seen a number of larger players take over smaller players. And the market there, or the companies within that sector, tend to trade at premier to NAV. And we were interested in a handful of companies that were still trading at discounts to NAV, on the basis that not only would the NAV go up, but that there would be some kind of corporate activity that would see a takeover, typically, at something more in line with the levels that the rest of the sector were trading at, and possibly a premium to NAV. So this past year, in recent months, we've seen Convert, which is an Austrian-listed property company, but with a portfolio largely focused on German residential assets, being bid for by one of the largest companies in the sector called Venovia, and at the time that that bid was made, it reflected a premium to Converse NAV, which was a good result for us. We've been taking the proceeds, as we've been reducing our exposure to Convert, we've been taking the proceeds and adding to another company we own called Adler, which is a German-listed uh, residential property company. Interestingly, Adler held a 25% stake in Convert and agreed to sell that to Venovia. But now Adler is pretty much the only company in that sector trading at a discount to NAV, and we would expect that at some point somebody may attempt to take them over as well. So um, that's one way of playing a property market. Another quick example would be 
a Canadian retailing company called Hudson's Bay. Hudson's Bay uh, owns a huge amount of real estate across the US, Canada, and in, in Germany as well. It includes in, in its portfolio the Saks Fifth Avenue store on Fifth Avenue in New York, and also owns the Saks Fifth Avenue and Lord & Taylor retailing brands. So this is a company that is viewed by many in the market as a, a retailer, and it tends to be viewed as such by investors and analysts. And when there's a problem in the retail sector in the US, for example, shares in Hudson's Bay tend to follow that move. But the interesting thing about Hudson's Bay is the huge value in its real estate assets and the desire on the part of management to realize, to monetize that real estate through a series so far of transferring assets into REITs, private REITs or joint venture REITs. And that is something which they, uh, which we and they state will continue to happen. So whilst the market is focused on quarterly profits and fluctuations in that, we're much more focused in the asset backing and the potential for that to be realized. Now, we don't know when those assets are going to be sold and when the market will wake up to that value. So we're just focused on the fact that that value is there. And at some point, we're confident it will be realized. Okay, that's interesting. Let me ask you about another aspect of your portfolio. You have quite a significant exposure to Japanese companies, I think it's fair to say, in one form or another. And Japan has obviously been a very interesting place to invest uh, for the last few years. The stock market has done very well, and it's slowed down again, and then there's been a lot of accommodative monetary policy. But then there's been the issue of the currency, which has first depreciated, then appreciated, then depreciated again. So first of all, how do you regard your investments in Japan as a, as a place to have money invested? And secondly, how have you been dealing with the issue of the currency gyrations? Well, first thing to say is that Japan has been a difficult market to um, make money in. Whilst our focus on companies in Japan is really no different to companies elsewhere in the world, the reality is that the corporate culture and the change that you've alluded to in that corporate mindset is very different to the rest of the world and the change is very slow. So how do we think about Japan? Well, we're looking for the same kind of companies. So we own some real estate companies, we own some holding companies there. We're thinking about the valuation of the underlying assets. So for example, we own Chiyoto Industries, which is the family-controlled holding company that owns over 6% of Chiyoto Motor Company. And alongside that, it also owns a series of other listed companies in related industries. The valuation of Toyota Motor plus those listed entities is above the market price of Toyota Holding Company. And in addition to, to that, you receive 100% ownership in two unlisted companies that are magnificent world-class assets. The real jewel in the crown is uh, the forklift business, which is a world, uh, the number one in the world. And there's also an engine compressor business in there as well, which is pretty successful. And those businesses, the value of those are not necessarily appreciated by the market. And the way we think about it is that, A, we're owning good quality assets that are appreciating in value. We're owning a structure that is inefficient and shouldn't really exist. There's huge potential to unlock those cross-shareholdings in the listed assets, to return that capital to shareholders, to buy back shares. And on a 50% discount to NAV, we could see tremendous upside. But we have to remind ourselves that it's Japan, and those kind of things don't happen overnight. They don't happen overnight. They don't happen overnight. So we are patient investors. We will continue to invest in those situations where we think that the value is accruing to us and hope that one day they'll do the right thing. Now, they are already beginning to do the right thing. So in the case of Toyota, some years ago, 
businesses in the, within the Toyota sphere were prevented from selling their wares to businesses outside of the Toyota sphere. Profit maximization was not on the agenda. Now they've been freed from those shackles. Now they can go and really try and make some profits. The other focus, which is typical of many Japanese companies, is on dividends and returns to shareholders. So Toyota Motor has been increasing its dividend quite strongly in the last couple of years, and that has been feeding up to the holding company and onto us as shareholders. So those are things that are happening. They're happening at a glacial pace, and there, there's so much more that can be done, and it could be done quite quickly, and it's somewhat frustrating that it doesn't, but one has to remind oneself that, that that's the way Japan operates. Now, the other point you make about the currency is a little bit more complicated. We had a, a hedge on the Japanese yen in 2015. We removed that probably almost a year or so ago. It's, on aggregate, probably broke even. There were periods of time when it added some value and there were periods of time when it lost value. Thankfully, that was taken off before the yen really appreciated this past year. And interestingly, Japan has been a very weak market in local currency terms. And for us sterling investors, pretty much all of that has been given back through the strength of the yen. I tend not to favor um, hedging foreign exchange exposure. I think that we designed to be a global investment trust. Investors in us choose to invest in a global investment trust primarily, I think, because they want to have the diversification of foreign exchange exposure. And it's not something necessarily that one that I can envisage getting right on a regular basis. And uh, therefore, I think we need to focus more on the company fundamentals and the valuations rather than worry about currencies. And I believe that over time, currencies tend to come out in the wash and don't, don't play a big part. The only proviso I would say is that these last three or four years, foreign exchange has played a big part in in returns, and as we know from from our own experience, after a period of three years in which they really cost us, we've now had a period of time in which they've really helped us. But I still think the right way for us to go is to not worry about foreign exchange fluctuations and focus more on the company fundamentals. So, by way of conclusion, as we said, you're a value investor, you have a particular style of value investing, which I suppose one could argue might take a little bit longer for that value to realise, because you have to engage with companies, you have to see discounts eliminated. But would you say, in conclusion, that the outlook for value investors such as yourselves is relatively at least much more positive now than after this long run of poor performance of value than it, uh, than it has been at points in the last uh, few years of the cycle? Yes, absolutely. I think that, uh, as I said earlier, valuation matters. And we see in our universe still very attractive valuations, despite what some people may say are very elevated valuations across equity markets. So our universe continues to be a store of value. And importantly, we see a series of potential corporate events that will unlock some of that value in coming months. And as an investment trust, that's the structure you have and have adopted. You obviously also have to have mind your own discount. And the board has been buying back some shares over the last few months, uh, or quite a lot of shares over the last few months in order to preserve that. Do you actually have a, a discount target? Or do they have a discount target? And what is the outlook for the discount on British Empire Trust? Well, we don't have an explicit discount control mechanism. We've been buying back for the last four years, actually, roughly 6 or 7% of the outstanding shares in each year. So we've had a, a very active buyback policy. We take the view that in order to sustainably narrow our discount, we need a combination of factors. 
We need the buyback to help the path towards a narrow debt discount. We need good performance, and we need to go out there and tell the story. So we've been very proactively going out to, to meet investors and tell the story about British Empire's unique portfolio. Uh, we've had a, a good 12, 15 months of, of performance, and we continue to use the buyback to reduce the volatility and the discount and try and bring it in to a, a reasonable level. So whereas earlier in the year the discount reached 15 or 16%, today it's sub-10% discount. It's still a little bit wider than the peer group is on average, but it's um, looking a lot more normal than it was six months or so ago. But presumably by the nature of the beast, as it were, you would not normally expect this trust to trade that far, or would you? Actually, on the contrary. I think that um, what's unique about this trust is not only does the trust trade on a discount, but the actual portfolio itself trades at a very wide discount. I mentioned earlier that the discount on the portfolio today is 30-odd percent. Back in 2006, which followed a, a very strong period of performance in the prior five years, the portfolio was actually trading at a 10% discount, and British Empire shares were trading at a 10% premium. So on a look-through basis, you are paying full value for the portfolio at the time. Today, the picture is completely different. Today, we're on a 10% discount. Our portfolio is on a 32% discount. The widest discount that's been up, by the way, is around 37%, and that was reached in the depths of the crisis in 08 and 09, and again in 2011 when we had the euro crisis. So on a look-through basis, or a double discount, um, we are trading at close to 40%, which is very much at the wider end of the historic range. And I think that um, that's a more relevant way of looking at the value in our portfolio than simply the discounts on British Empire. So that was Joe Baunfreund, the portfolio manager of the British Empire Trust, talking about value uh, and his hopes that that will be making a revival as a style in the months and years ahead. I'd like to remind you that uh, you can listen to all our podcasts uh, by logging on at uh, www.money-makers.co. We tend to put out at least one podcast every week, sometimes more. You can also find these uh, podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, and many other uh, podcast channels. Thank you very much for listening.